morning, good evening, wherever you may be, and welcome back to Stories for the Vortex. I'm Matthew Kreflin, and I'm joined, as always, by Mary Lang. Hello. Now, this is our first episode we've recorded in close to six weeks, having completely missed out the month of December. And, in fact, both of our November episodes actually came out in December, so apologies for the delay. But, as for those of you who heard our last episode may have guessed, November was a bit, November and December were a bit of a hectic month for us, uh, but hopefully we will be back on our regular schedule starting with this recording. Oh, just be truthful, Matthew. We were lazy butts over the holidays. Well, I wrote an entire novel. What are you talking about? <laughs> okay, I was a lazy butt. And a short story. <laughs> oh, okay, well, I wish I could be as productive as well, you. Well, I try. <laughs> now, this episode, we're finally going to finish off a thread we started last year and that we hoped we'd have finished before Christmas, and that is the Destiny of the Doctor series, which was a co-production between AudioGo and Big Finish to mark the show's 50th anniversary back in 2013, which led to some interesting troubles when AudioGo went out of business just before the 50th anniversary. So, uh, this episode, we're going to be taking a look at the three stories from that series, that featured the new series Doctors, that's 9, 10, and 11, and we'll be kicking off with Night of the Whisper. Someone strode through the smoke, a tall figure sweeping through the chaos, wide-brimmed fedora, obsidian black cloak billowing out behind. One of Wolfsbane's men rushed forward, gun up. The cloaked stranger lifted a leather-gloved hand. Kobold's blue energy sparked from the newcomer's fingers, hitting the heavy in the chest, knocking him back. The guard was dead before his body thumped down beside Rose. He hadn't just been shot, he'd been desiccated. His withered corpse smoked, all sallow cheeks and wrinkled skin. A shadow fell over Rose. Stomach knotting tighter, she looked up, straight into a featureless mask. Justice will be served, the stranger hissed. There was nowhere to run. Looming over Rose, the masked man raised his arm, death-dealing fingers pointed at her. Screwing up her eyes, Rose waited for the blast. Justice for all. Miss Tyler, this is... Inspector George Dixon, the newcomer announced. New, 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 Scotland Yard. From Earth. Oblivious to the commissioner's glare, Inspector Dixon plonked himself on a chair opposite Rose. I'm helping the locals investigate this whisper bloke. Saw him, didn't you? Rose leaned in. Yeah, at the club. Dixon mirrored her. Fantastic. What was it like? I was asking Miss Tyler about her life before New Vegas. We don't have any records. Of course, silly me. The inspector clicked his fingers and snatched up McNeil's data pad. His fingers ran across the touchscreen for just a few seconds. Found her. Full rundown of Miss Tyler's movements for the last five years. He passed the pad to McNeil. Must have been a glitch. Happens, doesn't it? Files get deleted. Emails lost. But she has a link to the Whisper. She does? Asked the inspector. He attempted to attack her, nothing more. We don't know that. I do. Checked her records twice. The inspector leant forward, hitting a button on the pad. As you can see, Miss Tyler had a problem on Gratchik Major. Need to talk to her about that. McNeil's shoulders sagged. In private? Earth business. 
We'll need a full statement. Leave it to me, Chief. McNeil turned and stalked out of the interview room. Rose went to speak, but the inspector shook his head. He slipped his hand into his jacket pocket. That's better. Don't want any eavesdroppers. The doctor grinned widely. Hello, Rose Tyler. Doctor Who, Night of the Whisper, performed by Nicholas Briggs with John Schwab as McNeil. Night of the Whisper is, of course, the Ninth Doctor story for this, and uniquely for the stories of the Destiny of the Doctor series, it is the only one that does not feature uh, the story being read by a companion from the actual TV era. That's presumably because, well, we know what Christopher Eccleston's attitude towards Doctor Who is. They couldn't get him back in the 50s, so what were the chances of getting him back to do an audiobook? And we know how busy Billy Piper and John Barrowman are, so this one is in fact read by none other than Big Finish's stalwart and voice of the most evil creatures in the cosmos, Nicholas Briggs. But perhaps more <laughs> importantly than that is the fact that this one, this story is a, I think you could put it in the sort of neo-noir uh, subgenre of, sci of the science fiction realm. It certainly brings to mind with its setting this sort of this 23rd century sort of, you know, city inside of this colony world yeah it's like it's like a bubble world. right but the world inside the bubble um is kind of dark and seedy and it for some reason what it brought to mind when i listened to it especially the second time was a cross between the first couple of tim burton batman films and blade runner <laughs> don't ask me yeah. why but that was what came to mind sort mm -hmm. of um Probably that's because of the fact that it is kind of playing on the conventions of the uh, vigil comic book vigilante hero. Um, because the story centers around this mysterious figure called the Whisper. Yeah, vigilante crime stopper. Indeed. And with the Doctor, Jack, and Rose showing up in the middle of it. And basically getting involved in events. Because let's be honest, it's the Doctor and that's what you do. Well, I don't get the impression that they just show up in the middle of it. Because Rose has been planted as a waitress in a, like a casino club. Right. And um, the Jack Harkness uh, character is undercover as a uh, reporter for, I don't know, a newspaper or I think magazine. it's like the Daily Galaxy or something. Um, you know, so I, I get the feeling that they're playing roles in order to infiltrate and learn more. Um, not that they, as we see so often in Doctor Who, where, you know, the, the blue box just lands and people, walk, you know, they just walk out into a situation. Right. That, wasn't, that wasn't what I meant, but good point. They, they've sort of arrived in this place and things are happening, so they're all kind of filling in. And you get the sense that, that maybe they've been there for weeks, certainly, working mm -hmm. their way into things. Yeah, because uh, Rose is already, like, the favorite waitress of the guy who runs the, it. The crime boss, who is this sort of humanoid, canine-like figure. Well, they describe him as being, like, a seven-foot-tall wolf. That's what, maybe that's what I was thinking of. You have your, you know, you have your sinister, corrupt gangster figures. You have the government officials. You have the police chief, McNeil, who's our other voice in this story. Because for those who have heard our previous episodes will know that the way these stories tend to work, is you have a companion or, you know, reading the story itself as well as playing themselves, and another actor in who's playing another role. 
And I will say, while we're talking on that front, uh, Nicholas Briggs does a good job with this, with the readings of this, which is no surprise given he's got a, as well as being the voice of, you know, the Daleks, Cybermen, Jadun, Ice Warriors, Zygons, the list goes on. As you said before, you know, he plays all the baddies of the universe. Yes. But he does have a very good reading voice, um, and I think the yep. biggest surprise of this is his Christopher Eccleston, which is oh my gosh, is spot is on, absolutely superb. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can tell it's not quite Eccleston, but he is so close, it's it's yeah. not even funny. It is it's almost uncanny mm-hmm. at times. I, I would put it up there with Fraser Hines's Patrick Troughton. In terms yes. of how good it is, and I think as a result, it might be next to Hines' representation of, of Troughton in um, Shadow of Death, I think it is, the second Doctor one. This might be the best representation of a Doctor within the range itself. You're talking about the Destiny yes. range? Oh, yeah, Because the Destiny range, for, for those who have not heard our couple of previous episodes or any of these, none of the Doctors were involved in any of them, uh, despite initial plans, which we'll talk about later. But certainly, I think, while Briggs does a very good job with Eccleston, his Rose and his Captain Jack are passable, but not brilliant by any means, I would say. I would totally agree with you on that. In fact, there are times when when he is evoking the um, Jack character, and I totally missed that it was Jack talking, because it wasn't a different, you know, not recognizable as Jack, and, and yet not that different from the other voices he's right. doing. Which is occasionally a problem with this series, especially with the story we're going to talk about later. Um, but I felt that actually the story itself, you know, this is one of my favorites from this range, partly because I, I do enjoy sort of, you know, the comic book vigilante idea anyways. Uh, I am a big Batman fan, as you know, Mary, having met me in Chicago wearing my Batman jacket with... <laughs> With the hood, with the cowl on it and all that. <laughs> yes. um, so I'm a big fan of that. And it's certainly, as I said, that, you know, and it, certainly there's a feeling of that. And I think that's, I sort of imagine the world that's set in this, I said, is sort of being a cross between sort of the griminess of um, Blade Runner and sort of the noirish, 30-ish thing, the setting that they used in the first couple of Tim Burton Batman films. So I think it actually perfectly fits that. This one was written by Kevin Scott and Mark Wright who are no um, strangers to Big Finish. They've been working with Big Finish since pretty early on. They created The Forge and the various project audios. Um, in fact, I don't know if Mark Wright's involved, but I'm pretty sure Kevin Scott is the writer of the Ninth Doctor uh, comic book miniseries we're about to get from Titan coming up in just a few months to mark the new series' 10th anniversary. But the story itself, I think, is quite interesting. It's certainly one of my favorites from the range. Um, it's got plenty of twists to it. Um, and I think if you like the kind of the comic book movie genre, I think it's something you'll enjoy. Mary, I've got to ask, what did you make of this? <laughs> well, on first hearing, which was last year sometime, I was so blown away by um, Nicholas Briggs's evoking of the Ninth Doctor that at first I was totally in love with this. Um, but because we've had to listen to it again for the sake of uh, recording um, our review, I realized that as perfect as just about every aspect of this story is, um, the way he does um, the Ninth Doctor and the evoking of that, as you say, 30-ish, 
almost Al Capone um, crime world uh, setting. Right. And story, I couldn't even say the story, is really well written. It moves along very quickly. It is an action story, um, which it began to occur to me as I was losing interest in it, realizing, well, okay, this is just an action story. And yes, it may be taking place on another planet, but there's not enough about the other planet um, that was really grabbing me. I just kept thinking of my of the this whole story could take place in Chicago 1930s. Yeah. But it's been transplanted, and the action stories don't do a lot for me. I'm not that interested, which I, I think I've pinned down for myself why I don't care for the Third Doctor era so much, because his were just mostly action stories that took place on Earth, you know. Um, so I, I the, the story doesn't hold me, not because there's any defects in the story, but it's a defect in me, in that I just don't like um, these kinds of stories. But I have to give it kudos for being, as I said, very action-packed, very fast-moving, very well done in every regard. It just isn't to my taste. Hmm. I, I mean, I, I can see where you're coming from. And as I said, I keep, I've keep i made you know, the allusions to it being a cross between uh, the Tim Burton Batman and Blade Runner. I would disagree to a certain extent that the idea you could have just completely transplanted it to uh, Chicago in the 30s, because I think the ending of the story and sort of the big threat that hangs over the last 10, 15 minutes of the story, it's something very specific to the fact that this is a colony world in a bubble somewhere, rather than it being just any, you know, any time, anywhere, as it were. Well, and I have to say that for me, even the first time I listened to it, I could guess pretty early on who the vigilante was. So for me, the revelation wasn't that big of a yeah. deal. Um, and yes, how, how this um, creature character person <laughs> becomes the vigilante is unique to where they are um, and probably couldn't happen in 1930s Chicago but I think by then you know it just yeah you know, like I said it just didn't hold me um, and, and I think again because I had guessed so early on um, where this vigilante uh, who the vigilante is yeah. I think it's like a lot of the twists and a lot of these big finish stories it just comes to a certain point in the story where it becomes uh, transparent is probably not quite the right word. Well, when they take you like off to the side into this wholly other story, it's like, well, why would they do that? Except the purpose of the story has to be <laughs> to set up right. who this vigilante is. Yeah, and it's like, oh, okay, that's probably who it is. Mm -hmm. So makes know. sense. But you know, I, I, I would rank it with Babel Spear and Enemy Aliens is amongst my favorites from this range. But for those who have heard our episode where we talked about the aliens will know how much we disagreed about that story. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Yeah, so it's it's not a favorite, but I, I still acknowledge that it's very well done. And for those who for whom, you know, action things like this appeal, um, I highly recommend it. All right. Should we move on to the Tenth Doctor story then? Please. Donna Noble swerved out of the way as a madman in a brown pinstripe suit dashed around the TARDIS console. Can you find them? Trying. Masses of interference, said the doctor. They'd landed in a valley that was sand and shingle underfoot. Surrounding them were wind-carved mountains looking like a sunset of solid cloud. A thick grey sky hung above. It felt humid and smelt of damp. 
It's the middle of nowhere. The doctor patted the blue box. Why have you landed us here, eh? Donna? Donna? I'm okay. We're both okay. Donna, I can't reach you. The doctor looked off. There's no time to reach you. They're coming. We'll find a way out. I'll be okay, doctor. Go and find Erskine. Do, do what you need to do. I'll look for the TARDIS. Make myself useful. The doctor smiled. Like always, Donna Noble. What are you looking at? Those weird mountains? They're not mountains, said the doctor. They're giant coral, humid climate, acid rain. This planet is one massive reef of land coral, alive and always hungry. No wonder it's called the deadliest planet in the galaxy. Doctor Who. Death Steel by Darren Jones, performed by Catherine Tate with Duncan Wisby as Crux and Erskine, and is a big finish production for Audio Go. And of course, it brings us to our 10th Doctor story from the Destiny of the Doctor series, Death's Deal, which was, in some respects, I think, one of the stories that was most anticipated because its reader was none other than Catherine Tate, returning to the role of Donna Noble for the first time since End of Time back in 2009-2010. And I have to say... It was a bit of a disappointment, not largely because of the story itself, but I would I, I feel almost bad saying this, but because of Catherine Tate. She's I, for me, she's not not really uh, an audiobook narrator, if that kind of makes sense, which kind of surprises me because I don't know if you've ever seen any of the Catherine Tate show, Mary. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which, you, yeah. You know, all of the characters she plays on there and how good she is with their voices and whatnot. Oh, yeah. And here, I mean, you can tell when she's doing Donna, because Donna, you know, even though it's her, there's a, there's almost a heightened, it's slightly more heightened, if that makes sense, when she's playing Donna and the way she talks and her voice and all that. I actually find her Donna a little uneven. Really? Yeah, because there's times when she speaks as Donna, but I didn't realize that she yeah. had. I was like, oh, oh, that was supposed to be Donna. <laughs> <laughs> But the big problem I had with this was it's kind of similar to what I had kind of with Janet Fielding in the Fifth Doctor one, which we had a big disagreement on, was the fact that she's reading everybody in her normal voice, which can make it very difficult to know when who she is at any given point. Excuse me. And that's where, yeah, we disagreed about that because I really liked Janet Fielding's narration and, and all. And in this one... Too, and I have to come around. If we had a conversation in which we agree about this at one yes. point, listening to it again recently, I have totally changed my mind. And although I find her okay as a narrator, I found her being the other characters in the story spot on, just wonderful. Um, I enjoyed all the characters that she did. And, and I attribute the fact that she does have that show in which she plays so many characters. And I thought she brought that to this really well. So I guess we disagree on that. Oh, wow. Because I, 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 her David Tennant does not sound like David Tennant whatsoever. Oh, no, that, it, it, that's the one area where I have to agree with you. Her, her David Tennant is a complete wash for me. I never knew when it was him speaking. Yeah. I mean, if it wasn't for the fact that they, the, the end of when he's got a sentence occasionally, so, you know, Darren Jones, who wrote this, would put, you know, the doctor said, or the doctor said looking grimly or something or whatever, uh -huh. uh, you wouldn't have known it was the Doctor talking. Right, right, except the the, um, the author, Darren Jones, I thought he did a great job of writing the yes. Doctor. 
it's just her inability to evoke him when she said yeah. it once. Which is which is kind of surprises, but given you know, given this, we said you know she's a bit of an impressionist. We know that from watching the Catherine Tate show and whatnot. She spent a lot of time working with him, and I've seen mm-hmm. on some comedy shows she appeared in where she was doing an impersonation of him, and it wasn't that it wasn't bad, but it's like she doesn't really try to make an effort here. And I don't know if it's because um, I, th- I, I listened to part of the uh, Making Destiny, I think is what it was, the behind-the-scenes disc. Um, and mm-hmm. I think she talked about okay, she doesn't have a lot of audiobook experience. And I'm wondering if maybe it was just some in- maybe her inexperience on her part to a certain extent. It, it could be. It could be. But I thought she vocalizes at least four other characters in the right. story. And to me, they stood out vividly because she did each one so well. Um, but her own, uh, I found her own um, Donna character uneven. Sometimes she was wonderful as it. Sometimes she she sounded a little washed out as Donna. But yeah, her her evoking of the doctor just never really worked mm, for me. Well, at least we agree on that bit. Yeah. Um, and, and there were times when I thought uh, the the author maybe confused the tenth doctor a little bit with the eleventh because some of the lines that that the 10th Doctor supposedly says, I could hear coming out of Matt Smith's mouth so much better. Um, a line like, um, always happy to shake a tentacle. You know, you could just see Matt Smith grabbing, you know, the, the creature's tentacle going, always happy to shake a tentacle, you know, but but I couldn't see the 10th Doctor I could see Tennant doing it. He wouldn't be shaking the tentacle, but he'd probably be sitting there with that smile on his, that smirk on his face. Um, yeah. I could see that. Well, yeah. you know, Terrence Dix is fond of saying that, you know, the Doctor doesn't change anywhere near as much as we think he does. Um, <laughs> which he would know. He's written for everybody, I think, at this point, with, I think with the exception maybe of Smith and Capaldi. Um, mm-hmm. So if anybody would know, it would be him. So, I, I mean, I didn't have a problem with the characterization. I thought Darren Jones, who, who wrote this, did a very good job characterizing uh, yeah. Tenet. Yeah, overall, I, I do agree with you. It's just occasionally a line that would come out to me, sounded like it was written for Matt Smith and not for David Tennant. I mean, in the story itself, you know, it feels very Tenth Doctor to me. Yeah. It, yes, it does. brings to mind a whole number of, of kind of stories. I think for some reason that the Doctor's daughter was the one I kept coming back to. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know uh-huh. if it's because, of, you know, there's a lot of the stories spent underground passages and, you know, it's a mysterious mm-hmm. planet and all that. And for some reason, that was the story I kept coming back to. Huh. And I kept thinking of Dune. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. With the, with the worm. Yeah, uh, Planet of the uh, Dead. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. That's a good point, too. Hmm. Uh, but I really, really enjoyed it. Now, this is a story that talks to the, the sci-fi fangirl in me. It's, it's on another planet. We're dealing with totally alien creatures, which I found fascinating. Um, I loved all of that. But I could not understand why anyone would purposefully land on this planet called Death's Deal. That's the name yeah. of the planet, is Death's Deal. I understand the TARDIS crashed on it, and other vehicles were crashing on it. They had no choice. Um, but in a planet where you, you're probably not going to be alive an hour from now, um, why would a, a, a pleasure cruise ship land there just for the sake of people looking around? Because this is an incredibly dangerous place to be. Um, so I did not understand that, except that it served the plot, you know, that, of course, what, what happens to the tourists, you know, is understandable. I mean, I, I took it as that this was sort of a black, 
market, you know, under the table operation. You know, the people basically were kind of morbid curiosity, kind of mm-hmm. going out and you know, kind of visiting it in the same way. You know, that there's there is a tourist trade I think in the, in the Amazon and in certain quarters where people will go out and pay money to go on a boat and go see you know supposed tribes people who are cannibals. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, but I mean, to to land on this planet to see anything going on, you die. <laughs> I mean, the only way you're alive is if nothing is happening. Well, it does. It, it, so. You get the impression that they've managed. This has worked before. Um, and mm. weirdly, the thing that came to mind in that regard was um, I don't know if you've ever seen the Patrick Trout story, The Dominators. Uh, yeah. You remember that's mm-hmm. how that starts? Is yeah, there's the island where the bomb was exploded. And it's radioactive, and it starts with this group of basically pampered tourists showing up on the island just kind of for the heck of it because it's something they're not supposed to do. Okay. Um, yeah, it's kind of what I was thinking of, but then again, Dominators is one of my least favorite Patrick Trout stories, so probably not a good, good analogy <laughs> to be making. Yeah, mine, one of the more tedious one ones. One of the more tedious ones. Oh, God, yes. But other than serving you know, the plot, um, I just didn't see any reason for a pleasure cruiser to land on the deadliest planet in the Yeah, universe. it doesn't quite make a ton of sense. <laughs> but you know that it's a minor matter. Yes. But otherwise, I, I the first time I heard it, I was so disappointed at first in in how she narrated and and did tenant and all that. It, it just I felt it was such a letdown that I I felt this was not a story I wanted to listen to again. But listening to it again, I got so into the alien atmosphere and the dangers, um, and the creatures and the other characters that she did that I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I had a much higher opinion of it. Uh, listening to it a second hmm. time. Maybe I should go back and listen to it yet again. <laughs> but I think overall, I think the story itself is good. I think the narration and stuff disappoints me. It is, if you like the Tenant era, it's a good story. I have to admit, I am not the biggest fan of the Tenant era. Well, it, apparently, it's a very popular era because didn't this sell out? Right yeah, off? when Audio Go went out of business and the CDs could not be reprinted, the CDs sold out very, very quickly. I remember at one point last year. Um, it was going for like a hundred dollars on Amazon. It was uh, it was outrageous for a single CD. I guess people were that desperate to hear the thing. Yeah, so, he's such a popular. Doctor. Not just a popular doctor, but a popular companion returning well, as yes, well. You're right. The companion is also enormously popular. Yes, but apparently, I mean, I'm looking on the website. Apparently, the CD is available again. So please do not spend a hundred dollars on Amazon. You can. You can probably find the whole series for that much at this point. Mm-hmm. So with that, should we move on to the finale of the series? Let's do that. Alice, could you tell me what's going on here? Alice was relieved. Professor Chivers, this is... In one bound, the Doctor reached Chivers and completed the introduction. The Doctor! Hello. Lovely time machine. I'm here to dismantle it. Sorry. You say you've made a time loop. Think about it. What shapes a loop? Round, Alice answered. Oval, at the very least. Depends on how many dimensions you use to track causality. Let's keep things simple, the doctor said, holding up a hand, making a circle with his finger and thumb. Let's say it's round. What else is round? A hole. Things get in through holes. You cannot stop us. Hello said the doctor, cautiously. Why would I want to stop you? We are already here. So I see. Who are you? He asked. We are the Kreeviks. The 
doctor's right, Alice replied defiantly. You don't belong here. You're like beetles inside a clock. You see the cogs, the working. You hear every tick, but you can't tell the time. The Creedix took a step closer, and suddenly Alice didn't feel quite so brave. The doctor's clock has stopped. Doctor Who, The Time Machine, by Matt Fitton, performed by Jenna Coleman, with Michael Cochran as Chivers, and Nicholas Briggs as the Crevix. The final story of the Destiny of the Doctor series, and indeed the last story we're going to be taking a look at in this episode, is... The Time Machine, appropriately named, given that it was the story released on the 50th anniversary. And it was a story that, because of AudioGo going into liquidation, or whatever financial term they managed to get themselves into, almost didn't get released at all. But it is available, everybody can hear it, including us. And it is most definitely the finale for the series. And I think that does create a couple of problems that we'll talk about, but... Something I think we've we talked about as we've reviewed the other ten stories in the series is the fact that they are all virtually standalone. Uh, you can listen to them on their own. There's a theme or a thread that ties them all together, and that each one has a sort of a cameo appearance in a kind of sort of way from the Eleventh Doctor. And of course, having reached the Eleventh Doctor story, we're going to, of course, find out what's been causing that. And that brings us to something quite interesting, because something we now know was that originally this story was supposed to be read by Matt Smith, and that Matt Smith was supposed to have been the one making the cameos in all the other stories, but his availability apparently shifted and he wasn't able to do it. So this story is read instead by the wonderful and lovely Jenna Coleman, who actually does not show up in the story whatsoever, because Clara is not in this story whatsoever, so it's a bit like Nicholas Briggs doing the Ninth Doctor one. Yeah, since she is a current companion... You think she would be in this story. Yes. And I will say that Jenna Coleman's reading of this was perhaps the biggest surprise because she's still fairly early in her career. She has, as far as I can tell from doing research online, she hasn't done any radio drama, doesn't have any audiobook experience, but you would never know that listening to her in this. Mm -hmm. She does an excellent job of narrating. Yes, yeah. and she, of course, gets to voice the pseudo-companion for this story, which is a graduate student named Alice Watson, of all things. Which leads to the Doctor, you know, making plenty of puns about Alice in Wonderland and Sherlock Holmes, which, of course, because Alice is a Oxford physics student, goes sailing right over her head. It's one of the great choices. <laughs> of those I love those. his first appearance when he says, what impossible things have you done today? And she's completely lost. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, you know what, I'm talking, you know, like Wonderland, you know. Through the looking glass, no, no, no clue there. He says, what, what the hell do you guys read these days? <laughs> Which is so Matt Smith. I mean, this is so written. Yes. Him. I mean, you can almost tell that Matt Fitton wrote this with knowing originally that Matt Smith was going to read it. Because it, it, the doctor in this comes across so well. And I can, I almost just want to go to the parallel universe where things worked out where Smith could actually have done the reading of this. Because mm -hmm. I bet it would have been superb. Well, you know, I don't know, because have you heard any of the um, uh, BBC books that have been done on uh, audio? Yeah, the uh, audio-only ones. There's two that he 
read. I know there's one, I think it's the Runaway Train or whatever, which is set in the yeah. West, which he does the Doctor and the British characters in that superbly, but his American accent is absolutely, is absolutely terrible. Well, yeah, but I also do not like him as the reader when he's not doing a, and, and I don't think he does his characters very well either. Um, when he tries to be um, Amy, oh, he's dreadful. Hmm. <laughs> so I, I I don't like his reading of things anyway, especially when he tries to evoke other people. Because I didn't think he, I've heard that one. I didn't think he did that bad of a job. That's a topic for another podcast, though. <laughs> yes, it is. But then there are stories that Arthur Darville reads in which he evokes not only the doctor spot on, um, but he does Amy perfectly. <laughs> I think I want Arthur Darville to read more. Oh, uh, maybe it is, and it's a shame that maybe Amy and Rory didn't stick around for just a little bit longer. Maybe Arthur Darville could have read this. Yeah, hmm. wouldn't that, be that would have been interesting. Uh, but you know, Jenna Coleman is not alone in this. We have Michael Cochran coming in to play Professor Tibbers, who's the other voice in this. But not only that, but of course we have Nicholas Briggs coming in to play the monster in this, which is the Crevix. Which, it certainly seems like an interesting idea. It's sort of these insect-like creatures from the universe after ours, I think is the way it's described in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole thing ends up building around a Oxford laboratory on the 23rd of November of 2013. Because let's be honest, it's a, it's a 50th anniversary story. What other date would you set it on? <laughs> um, in which Oxford professor Tibbers has managed to get a time machine working. And from there, you might say all hell breaks loose. Yeah, because what uh, what is it that the doctor says? You know, you create a hole, and then what shape is a hole? Yes. Um, you know, and what comes through that hole? Yes. <laughs> and so going into the future means things from the future can come here. Yes, and it just kind of, it, things get very interesting very quickly. Mm-hmm. And actually, things stay very interesting until about the last six or seven minutes. And... I think we met, having talked about just a few minutes ago, the fact that most of these stories are standalone, I have to say, this is the one I think that is not standalone because of what it does. Um, something we were talking about kind of in a, during the trailer break was, as you were talking about, Mary, that, you know, you talk about one of your issues with the Matt Smith era is the way things are often hurriedly finished up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, explanations, very complicated explanations are given rapid fire. And don't really, it's for me, add up very well. Or they come so, you know, it's like there's this mysteries that carry on through an entire TV story only to suddenly be resolved in the last, you know, 30 seconds. It's like, wait a minute. And I feel cheated. Yeah. And I think that that's exactly what happens here, except instead of 30 seconds, I think it turns into this incredible four or five minute monologue that Jenna Coleman delivers as Matt Smith's doctor where suddenly all of the threads from every story in this series are suddenly tied together all at once. And I'll never forget listening to this for the first time on the way up to Chicago TARDIS. And I, with the, literally as the speech was finishing, I pulled into a gas station to fill up the car and I went, wow. <laughs> well, me, I replayed that little speech about two or three times trying to follow it. Um, it, it's very hard to follow, and it does, and, and in the end, it's like, well, so what? None of it really was necessary, I don't think. Probably not. I mean, the thing is, it just, it gets, 
it gets long and complicated very quickly. I mean, when you need a five-minute monologue to explain what's going on. And how every first story of the Yeah, and not just that. Yeah, but not just that. I mean, you get, you know, connections from this story to that story. And that was, you know, you had to do this here, so that could happen there. And it's just kind of like, really? (laughs) I just thought they were good stories. I didn't uh, think that one thing was setting anything else up. I mean, mean, normally, you know, particularly, I, I mean, I've said before, I don't know if I've said it on here, but I know I certainly said it over on 20 Megabyte that, I, you know, I prefer Moffat to RTD, even, you know, and not to say that Moffat is, you know, without his faults, because he mm-hmm. certainly has them. But this, I mean, the ending felt like it was Matt Fitton trying to do a Stephen Moffat ending. Yeah, very much Stephen Moffat ending. I mean, how much can he cram into one explanation? And I think it's just too much, to be perfectly yeah. honest. I don't think it was really necessary to just take absolutely everything and just tie it absolutely together. Right. This was a good story all by itself, and it could have resolved all by itself without the need for all of that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's kind of a surpri- you know, surprising that, you know, you have an 11-month buildup, and mm-hmm. each of these stories was released, and that's the bombshell you're going to drop? Is, you know, a five-minute monologue? Yeah. yeah, in every story, the, the 11th Doctor shows up in some form or another saying this needs to be saved or that person needs to be saved and 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 so yeah we're eagerly anticipating in this story okay what was that all about yeah yeah now that all these people and things have been saved all the way to the end of the story it seemed it's totally inconsequential yeah (laughs) it's like something that was it's almost tacked on in a way because it was like okay we set all this up now we have to resolve it go yeah, we, <laughs> what are we going to do with it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and it makes it sound like, you know, this was terrible, but it was It was not. It's a good story. She reads it well, um, and she evokes him very well. Everything about this is really good, yeah. as you've said, except for those last uh, five minutes. Yeah, and I'm, yeah, my hat's off to Michael Cochran, who plays Chippers in this, because I think he does a very good job as well. Yes, um, yes. And I will say that his character has a very nice tie-in to some to something else from earlier in the series, but I'm not going to say what. So if you've heard all of them, you're going to appreciate it. My fault, I think the faults with it, you know, don't quite outweigh all, all the positives in it, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, though, I think it's, as I've said, that, you know, I don't think it's standalone whatsoever. I think you need to have heard at least part of the series before you go into this. Um, because otherwise you might be scratching your head for about five minutes going, well, what does this have to do with anything? Yeah. Uh, very true. Oh, man. So, but, oh, I mean, overall, what did we think of the Destiny of the Doctor series then? Um, I think it was a very good series overall. Um, I think it's definitely worth listening to, and I think it's fun to hear uh, the different companions, when it is a companion, um, telling a story about their particular doctor Um, and when it isn't a companion uh, actually involved in the story I think that the the the, the actors uh, reading the stories overall did a very good job Um, so yeah I think as an anniversary thing this was wonderful I mean I would recommend you know the series generally to anybody and I know that this this is going to be too late news for most people um, but I know Big Finish over Christmas, their last day of the 12 days of Christmas, they offered this entire series 
at a, a bargain price of $2.99 for download. Yeah. But I see even without that sale price, they're just $3.99 for download. Yeah. So I think that is still, you know, a really good deal. And CDs are all available for about $10 to $11. So if you're a bit of a Luddite like I am, the, the CDs are pretty affordable too. They're all single disc stories. Um, I think, you know, the, my own thoughts on the series was that it was it was interesting, if not entirely successful at times. There were some stories in here I was not a huge fan of. Mm -hmm. um, the Sixth Doctor one in particular was a big disappointment. I wasn't a big fan of the Third Doctor and the Fifth Doctor ones, but, you know, which is even more surprising, because I like the Third Doctor era. Um, but you can go back, I think it was Episode mm -hmm. 8 that we talked about that one, and I think we all had the same issues regarding mm -hmm. that story. It's, yeah. it's certainly an interesting way of trying to tie everybody together. Uh, could have been handled better, I think. But certainly, I think if you, you know, it's well worth a listen, especially at the price that it is. Mm -hmm. um, the one big shame of it is, is that before Audio Go collapsed, Big Finish was talking to them about doing another series along these lines. So that's something we were deprived of, and we could only wonder what that might have been like. So. A multi-doctor series? Would have been another multi-doctor like series like this. Uh, Jason Ellery mentioned it, um, I think, oh. in a podcast they did and recorded at Gallifrey last year. Uh -huh. and it was just something that because uh, AudioGo folded, it didn't happen. It might still happen now since AudioGo seems to be uh, back up in business or whatever they're calling themselves now. Uh, mm -hmm. Back up in business, but we'll see, I guess. Time will tell. It always does. Oh, but in the meantime, since we've been off the air, we do have a piece of feedback. That actually goes back to our Companion Chronicles favorites episode that we recorded way back last June. And it's from, I believe, Mitch in Omaha. And it goes a little something like this. No, I'm still not caught up, but I've listened up through the Sarah Kingdom trilogy. You asked for feedback about other Companion Chronicles. I'll be honest, most of them are a chore to get through. That said, there are a handful of Companion Chronicles that I have truly enjoyed. My top two include ones you've raved about and one I haven't heard any comments on. They are Carrying the Piscom Paradox and Transit to Venus. I'm sorry, I find most of the talk at you stories boring. Neither of these fit that description. Transit is a perfect story from beginning to end and rewards a second listen in a way none of the other Companion Chronicles do. The first time, though, you think you understand that you're listening to the story, only to find out, you find out your second time through that you've just listened to an entirely different tale thanks to your new perspective. I love that one. I love that idea, you know, of, of a whole different view of something the next time you listen yes, to it. Yes, I've heard Transit of Venus, so that one's a very good one. And there's some more as well. Oh, yeah, there's several Companion Chronicles I think are very good. Um, I'm sorry that he thinks that most of them are a chore to listen to. <laughs> oh, there's more to the feedback. Okay. Other favorites include Solitaire, which is the only story I can think of in the range, which takes place in real time. It's also Charlie's Welcome Return, though the story itself is ambiguous as to which doctor she is traveling with. Sure, Aid is on the cover, but due to the events of the story, he's not really described. It could go either way. I think it's an Eighth Doctor story, personally, because of McGann on the cover, and she does a bit of McGann's voice at one point in that story. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard That's that a very good one. We, maybe we should put that on the list. <laughs> our ever-expanding list. <laughs> a Town Called Fortune. Let's face it, I would pay money to, to listen to Maggie Stables read out of a phone book. In the hands of a lesser actress, this could have been a by-the-numbers story. With Maggie, it's brilliant. The Oliver Harper trilogy. This trilogy works for me on every level, and I very much want to hear more from this trio. It could happen. 
tells from the vault. The concept is fun, and it's nice to hear Daphne Ashbrook again. It's a sad Yuji still can't act, but Daphne is in, is in this is the story. <laughs> oh. The last post. I think of all the Caroline John stories, this is my favorite. I didn't hear it until after her passing, and the interviews are sort of wonderful, listening to the joy she has coming back and playing Liz again. I don't know if anyone mentioned this already, but you both stumbled over Paul Mars' name. It's pronounced just like the planet. The G is silent. I think if I remember right, somebody mentioned a story he'd written and we could not pronounce his last name to save our lives, if I remember correctly. Okay. So apparently it's Mars with a silent G. Okay. I started listening to a few of the Iris Wild Time stories. I plan to pick up the lot as well as some of the early Bernie Summerfield stories soon. Have you tackled these ladies, two ladies yet? Mitch from Omaha. Um, we haven't tackled any Iris Wild Time. I know we've done a little bit of Bernie Summerfield. Um, yeah, we did the new adventures of Bernie Yes, Summerfield. we did the new... We haven't done her early stuff. No, we yet. haven't, though. That is something we do have tentative plans to do, is to look at uh, three of her early stories that were in a connected trilogy. So, something we plan on doing this year. Though, at the rate our list is going, we may be looking at it next year as well, if the right things are going. <laughs> we may be in a nursing home still trying to get to the big yes, release. there is just so much of it to do, but you know that's why we're here. We enjoy the stories and we enjoy talking about them and hearing from you, the listeners, your thoughts on stuff we've reviewed and stuff we haven't reviewed, and your suggestions and whatnot are always welcome. Yeah, and it was really nice to hear from Mitch. I'm glad you found his feedback. Yes, um, to just explain what happened, um, to apologize to Mitch for how long it's taken for us to read out your feedback. Yahoo, in its infinite wisdom, puts your feedback into our spam folder and i literally found it just a couple of days before christmas so and this is the first episode we've recorded i think since the feedback came in so i'm glad we could finally get your feedback read out on the show and if you'd like to send in your thoughts or suggestions to the show you can do so at feedback.vortex at yahoo.com or you can join our facebook group Next time, we're going to be looking at a story that should have been broadcast on TV 51 years ago this month, and that will be The Masters of Luxor, released as part of the Lost Stories range. It's a first Doctor story narrated by William Russell and Carol Ann Ford. So, until next time, I guess that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. So long. Thanks for all the fish. Take care.